This is Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. Hello, thank you for tuning in. I'm Mark Gerson, and I'm the rabbi's husband. And here, as ever, to unearth the inspiring, instructive, and highly practical wisdom of a Torah passage with a fellow seeker of biblical truth. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Dean Heather Gerken, the dean of Yale Law School. In addition to her leadership in legal education, most recently at Yale Law School, Heather Gerken has been published widely from seemingly all the major law reviews to all the major newspapers and magazines on a wide variety of subjects, ranging from campaign finance to campus free speech to federalism, to parenthood, and is even the author of, I read, some vampire novels. But only one person has ever read them, which is my daughter. Yes. The first question, which is unrelated to the biblical passage that you chose, is why haven't you published your vampire novels more widely? You know, I wrote them entirely for my daughter. I wanted her to see the heroine inside of her by reading the book, and I embedded all the practical wisdom I wanted to give her when she was a 17-year-old, and I thought she wouldn't be talking to me. So they're very personal. Although funnily enough, she's now 17 and she is talking to me. She's 18, actually. And um, she's read them all. And in some ways, they were so much a part of her childhood, us reading them together. What a wonderful gift. Do you have any plans to ever publish them? You know, maybe one day. Right now, it's pretty busy (laughs) being in the law school. So maybe in my old age, I'll publish them. Right. Well, God willing. Heather, your chosen passage is Micah 6.8. So please tell us what Micah 6.8 is and why it's so meaningful to you. So it's a very simple phrase, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There are various different translations. And it actually has real meaning for me because it was the passage we read at our wedding. So the truth be told, neither my husband nor I is particularly religious, but we also wanted something to sort of mark the occasion, something that we felt like we could share with all of our friends. And that was the passage we picked because it was so beautiful and embodied so much of what we hope we would, our marriage would involve and what we hope our lives would involve. So that's why we picked it. I think the goals are very big, even if it's stated in a very simple way. Well, I think one of the um, magnificent elements of the passage is how it illustrates such a common human dilemma, obviously in biblical days and today just as well. So I want to get your take on it as a, a legal scholar and educator. It says, do justice, love mercy. Interestingly, not the other way around, not love justice and do mercy, but do justice and love mercy, saying that justice and mercy are both indispensable elements of this world. One should be done and one should be loved. Uh, why do you think Michael put it that way? Yeah, it's interesting. I spend a lot of time thinking these days about the difference between what an institution has to do and what it wants to do. That's, I think, every dean in the country, every university president in the country thinks about that. And the way I understand it is that you know, we try to make this place as warm and welcoming for our students as we possibly can. But we don't do everything our students want us to do. But as there is a set of institutional obligations that are essential to us and that are core to us and that we don't violate, even when it may be that the softer, gentler thing might be to do something that makes people feel more comfortable. And so I'm not quite sure if that fully captures what this passage means. I think it's much deeper than that. But there is, I think, a question about hewing to the path that you must hew to in order to remain what you are and then trying to soften it for those who need the help. You know, as much as you should try to pay attention to those in need, there are just some things you can't compromise on. How do you know what those things are? So from a legal or societal perspective, I think one of the things that our society so desperately needs is a concept or even a philosophy or perhaps a theology of mercy. 
in conjunction with justice. If you were advising students and they said, Dean Gherkin, standing on one foot, when should we issue mercy and when should we issue justice? How would you respond? So a lot of professors like to pull things together. I'm a lumper, not a splitter. And I would say that you're right, that the system that we have uh, doesn't pay enough attention to mercy. But I also would, I would resist the idea that these things, for at least the legal system, are not more deeply connected. That is, let me just give you a concrete example. One of my wonderful, brilliant colleagues, Miriam Gahara, works all the time on cases involving violent offenders. So there are people who have done something really terrible. And what you find with almost all of them is that in their background is often childhood trauma or some terrible abuse. Um, so then the question that you might ask yourself is, some people will say, well, if you are reducing their sentences or taking these things into account, that's merciful. But you also might understand that to be a different form of justice, just not the sort of cruel justice that we tend to meet out in the courts. So I tend to want to pull those things together and to imagine a system where justice and mercy are closer together than they are in our current legal system. But I, I also recognize that there are always limits to how far one can go on that, on this front. And so that's the dilemma of every institution is to find out how to, how to hew to the course that it must, but while being gentle along the way. Right. So what notion do we have of kind of combining, and I think you're absolutely right, it's really combining, and that's why Micah combined them, do justice and mercy. And I think the third clause is also so important, walk humbly with thy God. In other words, no one's going to get it right, right? There's no notion of getting it right. It's an impossible balance. So we have to be humble in our assessments of justice and our assessments of mercy. And I also love the concept of walking. It doesn't say stand there, because when you walk, what happens? You get lost, you trip, you fall, you find something new, you discover something old. That's why we walk humbly with thy God. But how do you think we can do it both from a criminal justice standpoint, which you touched on, but also just from, let's say, the legal profession. Let's say someone said or tweeted something 10 years ago that is deeply regrettable, and now they wish they never did it, and they've acted differently in the previous 10 years. Just pure hypothetical. Should they be treated as though it never happened? Should they be treated as if it did happen? How should we think about something someone said or did short of a violent crime, let's say 10 years ago? We had a conversation a little bit like this with my colleague, James Foreman, who wrote a really beautiful book on mass incarceration. And James has spent most of his life as a public defender and working on criminal justice issues. And what James always says is that we should always try to not to judge people by their worst act. Doesn't mean that you should pay attention to it. Doesn't mean that you should know that it exists. So that you shouldn't condemn an act that is a wrong one, a wrongful one. But he also tries to remind us that all of his work has been devoted to the idea that you should not judge people by their worst act, and that you should create opportunities for them to be their better selves. That's a beautiful thing to be able to say, but it's a very hard thing to do. And what I admire about James is he really lives that every day in the work that he does, and that seems like the right goal. I've spent the entire semester telling our students to be gentle with one another. And the reason I've said that is because, you know, it's a really tough time and we're at each other's throats in so many different ways. And just to remember to be gentle with one another and to recognize that people make mistakes. So again, James, you know, in the very first talk we had with our 1Ls, James talked about the difference between calling someone out of the community and calling them into the community. So none of this is to say that you don't talk about the issue, raise the issue, make clear your views on an issue, but there's also a difference between pulling someone into the community in that conversation and trying to find change with them versus shunning them and sending them outside the community. And I think that part about walking humbly, part of the ethos behind James's view and behind that way of dealing with other people is, is a little bit of humility about your own flaws. Right. Now, of course, there are times, I think he put it so beautifully, and you, you reiterated it, is, 
if we live in a world without mercy, we inexorably judge somebody by the worst thing they ever did or by the worst moment of their life. That's life without mercy. On the other hand, sometimes, occasionally, justice demands that someone is held effectively, eternally accountable for one act, a murder, a few other kinds of acts. What is there? And maybe there, there is none yet. Maybe it's a matter of what you said, just walking humbly and realizing how difficult this is. And perhaps the fact that we're wrestling with it now, as obviously Micah wrestled with. This is how he summarized the whole Torah. This was the eternal dilemma he was in. But how do we know when to forgive and how do we know how to forgive? In other words, how do we know when to do justice and how do we know when to give mercy? So I'll just go back again. I actually think that James's conception of mercy and justice combines together in a more, it doesn't make it so stark a choice. Now, this is what lawyers do is they resist the hypothetical mark, as you know. For me, just to dwell on the beat, walk humbly, I actually think that the whole point of the legal profession is humility. From the very first day you walk into class, you are forced to make the very best argument for the people on the other side. And that's hard to do, especially when you loathe the position of the other side. And the reason we do it is both to make sure that people are good lawyers. That is, if you don't understand what the other side is arguing, you're not going to be able to respond effectively to them. But it's also a lesson in humility. That is, it's a lesson in recognizing that you don't have every argument on your side, that there are sometimes arguments on the other side that are worth engaging with. That kind of humility doesn't exist in politics these days. But I I feel like it is a value that we try to teach in the legal profession, to have some humility about your own commitments and to have some humility about whether the other side is right or wrong. So that's really an education and humility that you're providing by having the students argue the other side. Yeah. You know, everyone I know who does this work, you know, the best lawyers I know are always the ones who can, who are humble about their strengths and weaknesses of their case. You know, it doesn't make them less vigilant or less passionate, but it does make them treat the other side in a different way than they would if they were just true believers. Right. Because I suppose if you approach one side of the case as a true believer, and therefore you think the other side is either evil or stupid or some combination of the other two, and then the other side presents his or her argument, and there's something interesting there, there's something good there, there's something convincing there, you're totally unprepared for it. Yeah, exactly. But also notice that lawyers, that humility is baked into how we lawyer, but it doesn't mean that you aren't a fierce advocate. It doesn't mean that you don't, you give up on the fight or that you compromise on your values. It means that you have to sort of balance those two things at the same time. Now, one of the interesting things, one of the infinitely interesting things about the Bible is that the existence of a prohibition shows the prevalence of the thing being prohibited. So the most common prohibition in the Bible is do not fear, 80 times in the Torah. Obviously, people were, as they are now, afraid of all kinds of things all the time. It says you should love the stranger 36 times. It never says you should love your children, because obviously you're going to love your children. No one needed to instruct you to do that. But love the stranger is not so easy and not so obvious. It has to be commanded many times. Here it says do justice and love mercy, does that imply that mercy is something that's not naturally or automatically loved, but therefore has to be educated or indeed commanded? Yeah, I think actually that that's really lovely, Mark. I never thought about that, but I think it's much harder to be merciful than it is to think that you're doing justice. Showing mercy requires genuine forgiveness, and that's the hardest thing to do. The reason why we say the phrase self-righteous, we try to get our students to be righteous, but not self-righteous. What a great distinction. Um, but I think that the reason why it's easy to do justice is because it's easy to feel righteous. And oftentimes that bleeds into self-righteous. It is never easy to show mercy, I think, because it means if someone has genuinely harmed you, how do you get it, find it in yourself to forgive them for that and to treat them gently for that? And so mercy in that case, it's so necessary because nobody wants to or nobody can live in a world without mercy because then we're just, as we said before, defined by the worst thing we ever did. But granting mercy 
is a kind of argument against interest. Because you can't grant mercy if it's not against you. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I actually feel it really right now in, the, in these very hard days. Everyone is on the knife's edge. Everyone's exhausted. And it's so easy to take it out on other people. So sometimes, you know, as a dean, you feel like someone who's talking to you, you know it's actually not personal. That they're just working out their fears and anxieties at that moment. And you can take a step back and you can, we call it the dean's pastoral role, right? The dean's pastoral role is to work people through that. But it's hard. So this is a student coming in and making some kind of a demand. Student, faculty, staff member. I mean, every, you know, in the time of COVID, everyone is so anxious that they are working these things out through a series of questions, demands, and so on. And, and it can feel personal because it can feel like, what, you know, you're upset with me personally when you realize, actually, that's not what's happening. What's happening is they, they just need someone to work through this with them and they're expressing their anxiety because they don't know where to put it. And that when they put it on you, it's not you that they're putting it on, right? It's, it's just they need somebody and you're that somebody at the moment because of the position that you're in. And that is, it's essential to to know that, but it's hard sometimes. Well, you're loving mercy when you're doing it because you're resisting offense. Yes, exactly. How in that case, which I guess is not so hypothetical, does the person making the demand or the argument, the person working him or herself through something, but taking it out on you, how do they respond when you offer them mercy? But justice too, because you're not saying they're right. You know, actually, I think somehow if you answer people in the same spirit of generosity and are patient with them and let them work it through and don't react in an angry way, that that just makes an enormous difference. And people just need to process things. And once they process it, actually, they almost inevitably take a different position, take a step back and become gentler themselves. But it just takes a while. And this isn't just deaning. This is parenting. This is, you know, being inside a family. This is being inside a corporation. Everyone, I think, is feeling it in some way as everybody works through the anxieties of this moment. Do people want to hear the other side? The other side could be someone's making a demand about how Yale Law School needs to respond in the era of COVID. And there could be another side to that. The other side could be a political argument. It could be anything. Do people want to hear the other side? Do they want to learn from what might be the very different, strongly held convictions of others? Or is the feeling of self-righteousness, which I think shows very well in fMRI machines. I mean, when one's views are confirmed on an fMRI machine, like the pleasure receptors go off in the brain. Or do people just want to enjoy the, the pleasures of self-righteousness? You know, I worry a little bit that our politics these days have leaned far more towards the politics of self-righteousness. Um, people are just so angry. And sometimes that angry, I just want to say, is righteous. There are moments where it is right to be angry and it is right to confront. But, you know, if you sort of look at the way that social media sometimes works, the quickness of it and the quickness to judge and the complete lack of sympathy, all of that stuff is just not the way politics should work. These days, so I do think it's harder for people to listen to the other side because the politics of the moment are so terrible and things have become so polarized. And so actually it just makes, I think that just makes clear that institutions, academic institutions, law schools need to double down on getting everyone to take a step back and teaching them to listen and reminding people of the humanity of one another. Yeah, I think uh, Rabbi Yitz Greenberg said it so well, talking in a very Jewish context when he said, um, I don't care what denomination you're in as long as you're ashamed of it. In other words, if you automatically try to identify, not automatically, quite the if you not automatically, but you do anyway, identify the weaknesses in your own position, in your own identity, in however you define yourself, you'll end up becoming stronger and more generous and more understanding. So let's talk about the um, education that you talk about in humility. In a legal education context, it seems like uh, what a magnificent way to do it. In other words, have the student take the other side. But how can it be done on a more societal level? In other words, how can society at large educate itself better in humility? 
I wish if I knew the answer to that question, I would deserve to be the dean of Yale Law School, Mark. I would say a couple of things. So one is I feel like social media is actually in some ways the worst possible medium for doing this because it's quick, it's impersonal, and the person across from you is a cipher. So I often see, you know, people saying something that they would never say to a human being. I do have some faith in human contact and so on. Um, the other is just sort of getting people. I actually do feel like the whole purpose of the of an education is to enlarge your view. And to remind, it is an exercise in humility. The best education, um, one of our alums recently said this, Mark Allen. I forget exactly how we phrased it, but he said something like, I had a strong enough education to make me humble. That's the sign of a great education is that it makes you humble about your own views. And I think that is the right way to understand what education should do. How you structure it in a mass democracy is really hard. And what it depends on in large part is people modeling the right behavior. So one of the things I did today I went to introduce a talk from a scholar whose views I disagree with pretty fundamentally. But I thought it was important for me to introduce him to talk about what I see as the value in his work, what I see as the value of him as a scholar, to engage with him, uh, because I think that models the behavior that I think that an education is meant to promote. We need our national leaders to be doing that at this moment. We need everyone to model this behavior in one fashion or another, and not everybody is doing it. I, I work a lot with Christian missionary doctors in Africa. And- if you ask any of them about their missionary aspects of missionary work, it's always about the power of the example. It's never an abstract argument. It's always the power of the example that they say is what is able to open other people's hearts. But I think you just said something so profound that really could educate the culture, which is never say anything on social media that you wouldn't say or perhaps haven't said first to another human being. So find someone who has the position you're criticizing. It shouldn't be that hard because it's a divided country, but it's a big country. So you can find somebody, right? And say it to them. Yeah. The other thing I also tell my students because I think where everyone does this is when you find yourself going back and forth with someone on social media or, or even email, invite them out for coffee, which I know is no, not possible at this moment in time. It's not as easy, uh, but... You can invite them for a Zoom coffee. I mean, I've done plenty of Zoom cigars. You can do that. Yep, exactly. Um, but, but because you want to say to someone, when you said this, did you mean this or did you mean that? And when you said that, I understood it to mean this and not that. And those kinds of misunderstandings develop in an instant on social media, but it's actually much harder to do in a coffee because it's very rare that someone is saying the worst version of what you think they're saying. So the coffee model is the model that we should all be doing. And I wish we could do it at a mass democracy level. Absolutely. So what you're saying is that when these social media or other, but largely social media disputes degrade as they inevitably do, it's people interpreting the other in the worst possible way. Yep. So instead of saying, I'm going to interpret you, you're saying, how about you interpret you? Because in conversation, it's all about clarifying. How much of conversation is about, can you clarify what you just said? Yeah, exactly. Right. So that's what we need. We need that at a mass scale. I also sort of wish there were, you know, how there's a break. If the stock market starts to fall apart, everyone takes a break. I feel like that ought to happen on social media. You know, that at the moment, everyone just needs to take back, take a step back, take a breath, you know, think about it and then come back to it and reflect. Because I just think people are always better if they've had some time to process it. I guess that gets to the question, why do people engage in arguments on social media? Is it to convince? Is it to feel self-righteous? Is it, what's the point? (laughs) You know, I think that sometimes it's to convince, but I think oftentimes it's to rally around another group. It's like a revival meeting, except it's happening electronically. And it's not that there isn't a good reason to do that. It's good to know that you're in community with other people. It's good to know that you're not alone in thinking something. Those are not bad things. It's just that when it comes to sort of the treatment of the other side, you gotta be careful. Right. You gotta be careful and you gotta be generous, as you were saying. So Heather, thank you for such an interesting conversation deriving from um, this truly awesome biblical passage, which is preceded by Micah saying, I don't want your 10,000 rivers of olive oil. In other words, I don't want all your 
ritual, supposed perfection and purity. He said, all I want you to do is do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God. So thank you for such a discussion and such an awesome passage. Now, the concluding question always goes from one text, which is the Bible, to another text, which is Andre Malraux's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. So he says in the book, I just ran to a man with whom I served in the war. And he said, this man has saved a lot of Jews and had then become a parish priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. <laughs> yeah, that's a great truth. In your years as the dean of Yale Law School, what are two things that you've learned about humankind? Uh, so what I actually have learned, um, that people aren't as happy as they seem, I think one of the things I've learned always is that when you're struggling with someone, it's almost always because something big is going on in their life. And it's actually becoming dean. Now I actually see it because I know when a student is struggling, I know when something's going on with a faculty member. You know, and I know these things now in a way because of, of the role that I'm playing that I might not have known from a passing conversation. And so it's just a, it's just a healthy reminder that everyone's in their own head for a reason. And then everyone is dealing with struggles that you may not even see. And that's another reason to be humble and as generous as you can. And the question about um, no one being an adult, <laughs> I think that's not true. I actually uh, have some colleagues who are genuinely mature and thoughtful and admirable. I think one of the things that I've learned is that it actually just matters what the politics of the moment are in the following senses. That is, I do think that the sort of old sort of saw about academic life, that we spend a lot more time on silly things, spending a lot of time worrying about it. But when the big thing comes, no one tells you the second piece of that, which is when the big thing comes, we come together. So I just, I've seen it this, you know, this year that the faculty, the staff, and the students have never been better, even though it's the hardest time the school has gone through in a very long time, but they've never been more communal. They've never been more focused on our core mission. They've never been more supportive of one another. And it's precisely because we know we have to put aside all the small things and that we spend a lot of energy on at other times. But this is a moment, I think, when people don't realize that the other side of the academic saw, which is that it's not just the politics can be small, it's that they can also be really grand at moments when you need them. And that's what I think defines a community, defines a family, right? You bicker about the small stuff, but when you're facing a problem, you face it together. And that's really, that is what I have seen this year. And it, it makes me feel so lucky to be part of what, when it got stress tested, turns out to be a genuine community. It's of course in large part due to your leadership, which in just three years has become legendary. So that's way too kind. I'm, I'm, I'm lucky to have a great place. No, no, it's true. Among the alums, I was class of 98 and it's absolutely true. So thank you for all the work you've done for Yale Law School and for sharing your wisdom with us today. Well, thanks, Mark, because this is something totally different from what I normally do in my day. And it was really nice that I get a chance to do it with you. Oh, well, thank you. 